Welcome to the Susquehanna Valley Baptist Pulpit, preaching a life worth living, abundant life in Christ. And now the message. Revelation chapter 5, 1 through 4, and the scripture records, And I saw him, or I saw in the right hand of him, that set on the throne a book written within and on the back side, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereupon. And I wept much because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. Let's just read verse number five. Uh, because it sounds so solemn if you end in verse 4. Verse 5, And one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. Over the course of the next few weeks, we're going to use this as a theme that you'll find here. It talks about in the midst of the throne. You'll find it particularly in verse number 6. Chapter 4, he's really described the throne area and those things that are around the throne and what's in the throne. And he's really not spent too much time talking about him that sat on the throne. The reference is given in chapter 6 and verse 1. And here, when you come to chapter 5 and verse 6, you've got the reference of the midst of the throne. And so we're going to use that something as a linking point, and we're going to look at Revelation chapter 5 in three phases. We're going to have the book in the midst of the throne, the lamb in the midst of the throne, and then the song in the midst of the throne. And that'll kind of round out these 14 verses. And it will be a tad bit of overlap between the two because they do touch one upon another. As the apostle, in your notes, as the apostle continues his view of heaven, he describes a series of things. He describes a book, and later, uh, if we were to drop our eyes down to verse 6, we read a moment ago, he describes a lamb, and then when you move down to verse number 9, and all the way to the end, really, to an essence, he describes a song. The contents of this book, however, that is found in chapter 5 and verse 1, will be a dominating theme throughout the next several chapters. In fact, just to show you what I'm referencing, look in chapter 6 and verse 1. So he's got this book, and there's seven seals on it. You come to chapter 6 and verse 1, he says, And when I saw, or and I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts, saying, Come and see. And then in verse number 2, you've got a rider on a white horse. And then I just, I'm pointing out the seals is what I'm doing. Look in verse 3. And when he had opened the second seal, I heard the second beast say, come and see. Then you look in verse 5. And when he had opened the third seal, I heard the third beast say, come and see. And then you come down to verse 7. And when he had opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth beast saying, come and see. And on and on, you can get down to verse number 9. And when he had opened the fifth seal, and then there's a sixth seal, and then there's a seventh seal. And so each of these seals kind of will dictate the coming many of the coming verses, particularly verses that you'll find much of in chapter 6 and also in chapter 7 and perhaps 8 as well. And so it drives at a great point, and it's well worth considering for a little bit this morning, this book. I want you to recognize just for a moment the proximity of the book, the proximity of the book. Where's this book at? 
But the scripture relates something quite interesting in verse 1. He says, I saw that it was in the right hand of him that sat on the throne, was his book written within and without, sealed uh, within, and on the backside sealed with seven seals. So what's the proximity? Well, the book is located in the right hand of him that is set on the throne. All right, it's very, very interesting. Uh, of course, if you're a diligent student of the Word of God, you'll understand this right away and whose hand this belongs to. But this hand is the hand, if you will, of God the Father. It is not the hand of the Son. As you look and you read, as we did in verse number 6, you'll find out uh, that God the Father is seated on the throne and the Son is seated to his right hand. In your notes, it reads this way, that this is God the Father that is seated on his throne. For the Son in the New Testament, or the Son is positioned in the New Testament on his, that is God the Father's, right hand. And just a few verses to note that. Let's look over to Psalm 110. This is an interesting passage uh, that you'll find recited several times in the Scriptures. Uh, and as is the core in Greece, sometimes we read an Old Testament passage and we really sometimes don't give a second thought about it. Uh, we maybe perhaps um, didn't draw it to mind or we don't know how it is used. But much of the Psalms is prophetical, uh, meaning much of it has yet to be completed. There's a lot of prophecies in the book of Psalms. It's one of the most quoted of all of the Old Testament books, one of the most quoted in the New Testament. Notice, if you will, Psalm 110. The Lord, these are interesting words here, right? The Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. If you're looking in your notes, I believe the Matthew 22 passage, I believe the Luke 20 passage, and I think even the Acts 2 passage or Acts 7 passage, all are recitations of this passage. Prophetical in nature, my Lord said unto my Lord. In fact, in one of those, and I think it might be Acts chapter 2, um, it's used in the sense, or being used in the sense, not surely in the prophetical sense that we might would think of eschatological means, but rather uh, it's being used in the sense of defending the eternality and the Christology of the Messiah. What do you mean? That he is deity and that he existed before what we would refer to as the first advent. Uh, because in Hebrews we find this, uh, the, the counter is this wise, that they said, who was it that David was talking to when he said, my Lord? Who was he talking to when he said, my Lord? And so the reference here is of Jesus Christ. Look over the book of Hebrews, and I want to give you just a few of these for familiarity's sake as well. But in the book of Hebrews, this idea of the Lord Jesus being at the right hand of the throne of God is mentioned in several times. In fact, let's just take our survey. I think we've got three or four passages here. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3. And being, who being the brightness of his glory, the express image of his person, upholding all the things by the word of his power, when he had himself purged our sins, what did he do? This is speaking of Christ. Set down where? On the right hand of the majesty on high. Look at Hebrews chapter number 10. Hebrews chapter number 10. And draw your attention to verse 12. 
In fact, I can't do that. Let's move back to verse 10. Um, This shows a great distinction in his high priestly ministry. Uh, By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. When talking about how complete uh, the death, burial, resurrection, the sacrifice of this perfect lamb was in Jesus Christ once for all. There's a comparison made to the Old Testament. And every priest standing, he's referencing the Old Testament, the Levitical type priest, every priest standing daily ministering and offering oft times the same sacrifice which can never take away sins. You want to know how much greater your high priest is than the Old Testament high priest? I marvel sometimes, this is way off notes here, but I marvel how sometimes folks want to be entrenched in the rituals of the Old Testament customs and traditions. You want really an Old Testament priest who cannot be touched with the feelings of your infirmities? You want Old Testament priests that really cannot know the temptations that you face? You want an Old Testament priest who offers sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice? You want an Old Testament priest that wears out and has to be replaced every, I don't know, 25, 30 years? Because as an age of 55, they were done. They were finished. It was an arduous work. You want an Old Testament priest that only he has the opportunity to go once, once, one time a year into the Holy Holies? Notice, but this man, Jesus Christ, after he had offered one sacrifice, himself, for sins, forever, what did he do? He sat down on the right hand of God, from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his Does that sound familiar to you? Yes, that's Psalm 110 and verse 11. Let me show you one more. Maybe we would look at this as being the attitude when he sat down at the right-hand throne of God. Look at Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2. We're familiar with verse 1. Compassed about so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin that does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience that is raised, that is set before us, Verse 2, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. And so here's the imagery that you have here in the midst of this throne. Uh, God the Father in his right hand has this seven-sealed book. And as we already know from reading verse 6, and uh, really even verse 7 that we did not read, there will be this lamb who is referred to as a lion out of the root of David that will come forth and he will take the book out of his hand. The proximity. Notice, secondly, of regarding this book, its peculiarity. It's, it's quite a unique book. I'm just going to make a couple references here in verse number 1. We'll revisit these later. But the book was written within and on the back side. And so, of course, as you think about these books, our mind should really go back to the Old Testament mindset of a scroll. It's something that is written front and back, and then it is sealed together. It is latched, and each latching is a seal. And so, if you will, from top to bottom or left to right or however the configuration may be, it's these seals seal it so that you cannot see everything that is written in the book It holds it closed, and that is quite peculiar in its essence. 
Notice, if you will, number three, that there's a grand problem. Look at the problem. The problem, verse number three, look at this, and it's proclaimed here, this strong angel, as mentioned in chapter 10 and verse one, I think is a mighty angel. Uh, we're giving no clarification. Uh, it is an angel, it's a messenger of God. It's not one of the four beasts. It's not a cherubim. It's not a seraphim. It's a mighty angel. And I suppose by looking at mighty angel and later in chapter 10 and 18, a strong angel, um, that you have reference of different angelic classes for the purpose and ministry that God has for them. But he proclaims who is worthy to open the book. Verse number three makes a statement, no man. Now I want you to note this. He says, no man. So whatever this book has to do, it has to do with mankind. Uh, he doesn't mention an angel, but he mentions no man. And then with this problem, it expands even greater that it's no man in heaven. Well, we know what that is. These are resurrected believers. That's what no man in heaven is. There's not one in heaven. There's not one in earth. There's not even one under the earth that was able to open the book. And then by extenuation, because of the holiness of this book, it's in heaven. It's in the right hand of the almighty God soon to be taken by the Christ, the Messiah, there's not even one worthy of looking upon it. No one could open the book. No man in heaven, nor in earth, neither under the earth was able to open the book. Neither was any man found that could even look upon it. And as the scripture recalls in verse number four, John, speaking of himself, said, I wept much. Now, I want to revisit that after we get to the possibility that exists. And I want to talk about a little bit in just a moment of why John wept. Uh, as you read through this and study, you come to a lot of conclusions about why he may have wept. And I want to touch on that. But note the possibility. Note the possibility. As we read through this section, we ask ourselves this question, what is this book? What is this book? Now, there are several books that are in heaven. Uh, it's not just one. If you were to go over to the 139th Psalm, in the 16th verse, David said, and in thy book are all of my members written. But you're here in Revelation, so we might as well turn over to chapter 20. And this is the great white throne judgment. This is a great white throne judgment. That is, so this is the judgment for whom? This is the judgment for the unbelievers, yes. If you will, the judgment of the lost. Particularly, as you look in the verses, there's something of their resurrection that occurs. So this is the loss of all humanity from time past to advanced. If the, if the Lord was to come back today, it would be a thousand years from today or more. So you're looking at all of human history. In verse 12, John records, And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the what? Books were open, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. Sometimes I think we get the idea there's just one book in heaven, but there are at least, at the very least, at least four different books that are there. There is this book in chapter 5, there is the book of life that is mentioned, and then there is this books that are present. Now, I'm not going to take time and delve into that all right now, but I want you to know that there is more than just one book 
in heaven, more than one record. So there are several books in heaven. This, back to Revelation chapter 5, this seven-sealed book has been theorized to be a book of the redeemed. It really is a beautiful picture. In fact, it's given by several creative titles. Uh, sometimes uh, in this theory of this book being a book of redemption, um, it's referred to as the title deemed, title deed rather, to the redeemed inheritance, to the redeemed inheritance. That's a title that goes around, a lot of commentaries write about. Sometimes it's referred to as the book of the new covenant, the book of the new covenant. You'll even find it just shortened and some will refer to it as the book of redemption. And, and reality is there's a lot of pictures with this that are quite unique and interesting, and I think it's well worth the time to take a paragraph and just give you some of that. But you'll recall uh, the, uh, that all of these titles relate to the kinsman redeemer. Uh, you might think of the book of Ruth, uh, particularly in chapter 4, Naomi and uh, her husband, Amalek, and Melon Chilion had gone over. They've left the house of of Bethlehem, and they've gone to Moab because there was a famine in the land. And while they're in Moab, Melon and Chilion marry these pagan women. And basically, by the time you come into chapter 1, they're all dead except for Naomi and Ruth and Apporah. That's all that's left. And so Naomi decides she's going to return back to the land of her inheritance. And Opal, she leaves. She goes a different way. And uh, a poor rather goes a different way. And then there's Ruth. She says, wherever you go, I'll go. Your God be my God, etc." And she goes back. But that's not the end of the story. In fact, that's not the greatest even element of the story. But they'll go back, but they're going back to really nothing. However long they have gone, that land has laid fallowed. And so they begin to have to live the life much like the poorest of the poor. And in doing so, they were going to go and collect of the substance of those that had grown, and that was part of the civil government of Israel at that time, that when you would uh, hate, take of, of a land and you would plant, you weren't allowed to harvest the corners. And then as you were transporting it from the place of harvest to the place of stores, if you dropped it, you couldn't pick it back up. It was gone. So you wanted to have extra care, you know. And so Naomi goes, and she begins, like with the other folks, they're gathering that which is accidentally dropped, and she's gathering from the corners, and Boaz, seeing her, eventually tells of his servants, make sure that you drop some on purpose. And she gleaned from thence, and as a result, there was another provision. You see, Ruth, married to the son of Elimelech, was uh, entitled, or her children, child in particular, were entitled to that land of inheritance. She could claim it on her own, and so it would go back to a kinsman redeemer. And in chapter 4, there's the whole process that follows in. And there's Boaz is marrying her and assuming all of that responsibility. And God blessed them and gave them a son named Obed, I believe it was. And Obed begat a son named, I think it was Salmon. There was Salmon was in there somewhere. And then he begat a son, I believe his name was Jesse. And Jesse begat a son named, and now you know David is king of Israel. I might have that genealogy a little bit backwards, but the point nonetheless be taken, there is God's blessing of a kinsman redeemer, of buying back that which was lost. And that's the picture that is often placed. Sometimes an illustration is given of Jeremiah, particularly in Jeremiah chapter 32. Um, there's going to be this great land of captivity. 
they're all going to be removed from the land. And people are getting out of Dodge. Some of them are going to Egypt. They don't belong to Egypt. God told them not to go to Egypt. But they're trying to escape this judgment. And so Jeremiah has a cousin. And he tells him to buy a piece of land. And he buys this land. They set a seal upon it. And he tells him to get a jar and stick it in that jar. Why? Because there's going to be coming a day that we are coming back to this land. And though Jeremiah would not see that time, those of his descendants would, and they would be blessed by that preparation that he was making. And you know how that is in one sense. Why, if a housing market, main industry in an area closed, a lot of times folks just move away, and you can buy a parcel of land for nothing. And Jeremiah seeing this, but almost as a token of faith, he tells of those, I know that God's going to restore it. I know that God's going to restore us. So in faith, he bought this, and those of his descendants would later be able to inhabit this. And so looking at these two pictures, looking at these two pictures, that's often where this idea of this book being a book of redemption is brought to light. Perhaps one of the most cogent arguments that is given, and one of the most cogent evidences that is given for this conclusion is found in the response of John that he weeps. The idea there being that John weeps because he sees that no man is able to open the book, and if no man is able to open the book, then therefore he doesn't have redemption. However, I don't think that it's proper to look at this book exclusively in that light. Our thought for that is when this book is opened, what comes out of each seal? What come out of seal one, two, three, four? Judgment. When you look at a book as a book of redemption, it wouldn't be judgment, it would be mercy. When you look at the picture of Jeremiah buying of this land, why? It was mercy, not judgment. When you look at Boaz and his redeeming of Ruth, was it judgment for her? No, it was mercy. And that's the case point that is given. A seal in the Old Testament could be used to attest a signature to a title, but they were also used to safeguard the contents of a written document as well. So a seal does not have to be that of only a kinsman redeemer. It can be that as a safeguard to the contents that are written. We understand what this is. Uh, Back in the day, I think very few people probably do this anymore. But back in the day, you sat down in the middle of a month, and you had these things called postage stamps. How many remember those? And you'd write out your check, and you'd put that in your, your statement. And you'd put a stamp on it, and then what would you do? I was back before we got these nice strips, you know. You sealed it. And that's the idea of these seals. They held closed this book. That's what I'm referencing. They safeguarded the contents of a written document. So as we're thinking in that light, it's proper for us to consider, all right, is there any passages anywhere in Scripture where God talks about sealing something outside of the seal of a kinsman redeemer, something that might have to do with judgment? And the answer to the question is in the affirmative. I want you to hold your place here, and I want you, I want you to turn to... Um, the book of Ezekiel and the book of Daniel. Now, if you were able either to listen or were present last week, we were, I guess it's two weeks ago, we were talking about the four beasts. We also went to Ezekiel. 
At the onset of our study, I had mentioned something to you that a key to understanding the book of Revelations is having a firm grasp on the book of Daniel. Daniel is an Old Testament, and I would put it in this sense, in some regards, a Old Testament lens for the book of Revelation. They work in harmony together. So look in Daniel chapter 12. We'll go there first. Daniel chapter 12. In the previous chapter, in Daniel chapter 11, you've got some of the great workings of the son of perdition and the wars that will happen. There'll be a king of the south and a king of the north. Um, I, I mean, there's a king in the land of Egypt, tidings out of the east. And that is a pictorial overview, in one sense, of the early part, the mid part, and the ending part of the book of Revelations, of the tribulational period. Notice, if you will, in chapter 12, verse 1. And at that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince, which standeth for the children of thy people, and there shall come a time of trouble, such as never was since there was a nation, even to the same time. At that time thy people shall be delivered, every one that is found written in the... Well, there's another book for us. I keep going. And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Uh, this is a great verse for the preaching of the gospel. And they that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament, and they that turn many to righteousness the stars forever and ever. Verse 4, now he's directing this to Daniel. But thou, O Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book. Even to the time of the end, many shall run to and fro, and knowledge should be or shall be increased. Daniel Shut the book up. It's finished. It's finished all the prophecy that God would give Daniel. Daniel, shut the book, seal it up. It's all the prophecy that God would grant to any believer until you get to the book of Revelation. As far as an expansive book of this type of prophecy dealing with the end, it will be concluded until such time God opens that book again. Now, a contemporary one sense of Daniel is Ezekiel. And so I want you to turn over to Ezekiel chapter 2. Ezekiel chapter 2. I remember in chapter 1 and I think also in chapter 10, Ezekiel is describing some of the same stuff John sees. He's four beasts and with wings and eyes and fear, fearful uh, beings that created beings, living creatures he refers to them as that he sees. Well, chapter 2, note this, if you will, um, and particularly in verse 8. He's referencing the house of Israel. Uh, I always thought that chapter 2 would be a horrible passage if you ever had to candidate at a church. He talks about them being stiff-necked and rebellious people, but this is where God wants you to be. And uh, that's not a very indicative way to spend your ministry. But notice, if you will, in verse 8, But thou, son of man, hear what I say unto thee. Be not thou rebellious like the rebellious house. Open thy mouth and eat what I give thee. And Ezekiel says, And when I looked, behold, a hand was sent unto me, and lo, the roll of the book was therein. And he spread it out before me. And it was written within and without. Does that sound familiar to you? Notice what's in it. And there was written therein lamentations, mournings, and what? 
Does that sound like a book of redemption to you? No, it doesn't to me either. So the seal could be used as a signature uh, to a title, attest a signature's title, but they were also used to safeguard the contents, contents of a written document. In Daniel's prophecy, he has commanded to seal the book. John witnesses in chapters 4 and 5 the unsealing of the book and is commanded in Revelation chapter 20, and time won't allow us, but you have the passage there in verse number 10, he is commanded to seal not the sayings of the prophecy of this book. Ezekiel further described a hand that held a book that was written within without and was full of lamentations, mournings, and woes. As this book is open, there is less evidence of any title deed for the believer. And I would mention, why should there be? Where are all the believers in Revelation chapter number 5? That's what the 24 elders represent. They're all up there. Do I need a title deed for that which I could care less about? I'm no longer a citizen of earth. God never promised me that I was going to inhabit earth. God never promised me a hunk of land here on earth. He promised me a mansion in heaven, John chapter 14. Remember, I go to prepare a place for you. Did God provide that I would be a citizen of this world? No, like Abraham of old, I've looked for a city that hath foundations. That's what I'm looking for. I am to serve, and, and, and time won't allow us, but we'll look at this. I am to serve... Uh, as kings and priests, Revelation chapter 5 and verse 10, the redeemed host of saints of God in, in this dispensation of the age of grace are in heaven. I don't be honest with you. In a spiritual mindset, I really won't care what happens here on earth. My fears are heaven bound. I will weep for the judgments that will fall out upon those. I'll weep for the stiff-necked and rebellious people that will not comply and will not submit to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But my time on earth has ended in that sense. What's about to unfold is major a series of major prophetic events that is set in motion as Christ breaks each seal. This book is not to be seen simply as some book of a title of redemption, but rather it's a book of lamentations, mournings, and woes. Now let's revisit, why did John weep? I didn't give you a full list, but I think there's a number of reasons. I think, number one, John's weeping was premature. Keep in mind, he's still in an earthly frame. Yes, he's in the spirit, but he's in an earthly frame. He failed to consider that God always has a sovereign plan. And there is a man that was worthy. In fact, notice that word worthy is used in verse 11 of chapter 4. The Greek word's worth your knowledge. It's axios. It's what you would cry at a Roman or in its truest sense a Greek a uh, man of war that has just been victorious. Worthy, worthy, worthy. And he's already proclaimed one, the Lord, that would be worthy, O Lord, to receive glory, honor, and power. There was always a man. John's weeping was premature. He had not considered in his vision that diadem that he had just seen, that diadem upon which all of these elders, note chapter 4 and verse 10, cast their crowns before his throne. 
there was a man that was worthy. Yet it was also premature because each believer has experienced tears, which has come from a result of sin, or I should say has come a result of this sin-cursed world. I'll tell you what. Through one man's sin, sin of the world, and death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. And a lot of times when we look at the book of Revelation, we consider it the pouring out of God's wrath, and it is. But you know what else it is? It is the merging together of the evil of demonic forces that had previously too been held back. But you know what else it is? It is the occurrence of the wickedness that comes from the unrestrained heart of humanity. All three of those will merge together in one fantastic time frame. God's judgment, man's wicked, sinful nature on full display, and demonic forces unrestrained. My, I'm not in those world. But yea, even in this world that we live, we see this sin-cursed world and the influences that live forever, and doth it not cause us at sometimes to weep as well? A.W. Criswell, a pastor from many years ago, he penned this. I thought it was worth your time. A failure to find one who could open the book meant that death, sin, damnation, and hell should reign forever and ever. Equally, that the sovereignty of God's earth should remain under the hands of Satan. You'll remember 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the God of this world, having blinded the hearts of them that were without, lest the glorious light of the gospel should shine unto them? Yes. Think if I looked and saw a magnificent scroll in the hand of the Almighty God and heard the heralding angel state and question who is worthy and looked and there was no one worthy in heaven or in earth or under earth and looked back on the sin state that I have endured as the Apostle John I've watched all my other comrades that walked with Christ die a debaucherous death of martyrdom. I've watched godly people and heard of godly people like Stephen being buried waist deep and pelted with rocks until he died. And I'd wonder, how long, O Lord, will this wicked sin endure? The tears were premature. Sometimes there's a lesson for us Sometimes the sorrow in our life that we face at the loss of a loved one or sin that occurs in the life of a believer or the continual sin that we see in a society and fail to take comfort, not in that things will get better, but take comfort in the promises of God. You know, that's really what brought John comfort, wasn't it? What ceased his weeping? Verse number five, one of the elders said unto him, weep not, behold, 
the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. And I'm going to touch base on this next week, but look at that next phrase. What did he do? Hath prevailed. You know, to the Thessalonian church, that's what Paul wrote. Wherefore, comfort one another with what? The promises of the Almighty God. Yes, the book in the midst of the book. Father. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to contact us, please write us at P.O. Box 126-541, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, 17112. And visit our website at www.svbcpa.org. Until next time.